The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Starmer himself, I think. In a way, it's difficult to know what he is because he changes position every five minutes. Four. I just wish our political class were capable of thinking a bit more deeply than just going back to their own hobby horses. Three. I'd almost go as far as saying some of the most vulnerable girls in our society ultimately being sacrificed at the altar of diversity politics. Two. In the round, food is 7% cheaper in the UK than the EU Average. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily with Alison Pearson. But the co-pilot's taking a well-earned break this week, so I'm delighted to be joined by fellow Telegraph columnist and former number 10 insider Nick Timothy. Nick, you've helped me steer the rocket of right thinking in the past. It's great to have you back. Hello, it's really great to be back. The economy, stupid. That was a phrase coined by James Carville, Bill Clinton's legendary political advisor in the early 90s. Carville masterminded the Comeback Kids' successful presidential campaign against George Bush Sr. in 1992. The economy, stupid, was the message Carville drilled into Clinton's campaign workers as they canvassed voters, exploiting the fact that under Bush, the economy had slowed, with many Americans feeling poorer after Bush entered the White House in 1989. Well, with UK inflation still at 8.7%, stubbornly high, and the Bank of England poised to raise interest rates for the 13th time in a row, the UK is under pressure. That won't help Rishi Sunak's chances of turning around his party's fortunes, reining in Labour's 16-point lead in the polls. Britain has avoided recession, unlike the Eurozone, but UK inflation is much higher than the US and Europe. And it strikes me, Nick, that as government bond yields spike and mortgage rates soar, the economy stupid is set to dominate the headlines for weeks, even months to come, blowing away so much media froth and nonsense. So as a seasoned campaigner, a one-time senior Tory insider, what do you make stand-in co-pilot of Sunak's chances? Can our economy keep defying gravity, or are we soon to be crashing back down to earth? Well, I mean, it's obviously... A really difficult time. And the figures this week show that inflation is still persistently high. I mean, I think one of the things I'm really worried about is the fact that the interest rate hikes, which keep coming and we're told are going to keep coming, are not going to have an effect in the real economy for lots of people until further down the line. And then if we look ahead to, say, a year, a lot of the global pressures that are coming may by that point be disinflationary. We may be in a recession. Europe is already in a recession. And and we might find that some of of these rate rises just compound the problem that we're likely to be in further down the road. It's a really difficult set of kind of complicated, sometimes contradictory challenges that we're trying to fix. When I were a lad, Nick, studying lots of economics at various universities, we used to call these intertemporal problems, the timing of policy, Interest rate rises generally take between 12 and 18 months to really have their full impact. And that's compounded by the reality that so many mortgages in the UK are fixed, but those fixed rates then expire. That's what we're seeing. A lot of households did five-year, three-year, two-year mortgage deals between 2017 and 2021-22 when interest rates were low. 
Those deals are now expiring and set to expire in the run-up to the next general election. And those households will go from mortgage rates of between 1% and 3% to mortgage rates of 6+, plus, 7+, plus, even 8+, plus percent, which is very, very painful. And I think you're exactly right. The Bank of England's already got 12 interest rate rises under its belt. The day that Planet Normal is released, Thursday, at midday, we're expecting another interest rate rise, aren't we? Maybe not just a quarter percent, but maybe even a half percentage point in order for the bank to try and stamp its authority and say, we really want to squeeze out inflation. But just when the economy really slows, as you rightly point out, that may be when the impact of those interest rate rises is most widely felt. So, you know, who'd be the Bank of England governor at the moment? I've criticised Andrew Bailey in the past. He was far too complacent about inflation back in 2021. But now the bank governor, the Monetary Policy Committee, they really have a very, very difficult task. And it's unlikely that the political class will allow itself to leave the Bank of England alone and maintain its independence. I think there's a real kind of policy crunch coming. Yeah, and I think I mean I think there's a real sense that actually our chickens are coming home to roost a little bit. I mean one of the reasons why the increases in interest rates are going to feel so painful is because of monetary policy over the last 15 years following the great financial crash where we got used to interest rates being right on the floor but also the country got a bit addicted to quantitative easing. And, you know, people think of QE, I think, in terms of the financial crash, but actually only a quarter of the QE that Britain has done followed the crash. The bank got a bit addicted to it and started using it to help meet its own inflation target after Brexit to cope with the pandemic. And and what that did was artificially prop up asset prices. And that was pretty regressive because it helped those who already had had assets at the expense of those who didn't. But now we're at a point where, uh, you know, if the cost of borrowing is so high, lots of people are really going to struggle to make those repayments. I think that's exactly right. A lot of this does go down to how we responded to the global financial crisis of 2007-8, which was caused, of course, by rapacious banking titans taking massive bets, knowing that their banks would be bailed out by taxpayers, given that they were also responsible for ordinary deposits of firms and households. Interest rates went ultra low for too long. And of course, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, many other central banks printed lots and lots of money or created lots and lots of digital money out of nothing, quantitative easing, as we must call it. And that was a justifiable emergency measure, I felt, in 2009-10. But after that, it just became an indulgence. It went from kind of emergency medicine to lifestyle choice, sort of the economic equivalent of crack cocaine. And I must point out here, you work closely with Theresa May, a former prime minister who doesn't always get the best press. And I remember vividly, I think I talked to you about it at the time, Theresa May as Prime Minister, she did from the podium once, I think at Conservative Party conference, try and say that she was worried about all this quantitative easing. It didn't feel right to her back in 2016, 17. And she was roundly shot down by a whole load of commentators who in turn were being steered 
by the Bank of England. So I'm not surprised that you bring up quantitative easing, Nick. I do think it's something that is now coming home to roost. And the fact that we have had interest rates so low for so long with lots of central bank money printing too means that government bond markets, they're now likely to kind of spring back to reality and what we call yields, the demands that investors make on governments to lend them money. There's a lot of sort of upward momentum in those yields and those higher yields do have knock-on effects on mortgage markets. And just to add to the economic brew, if you like, almost unnoticed today, Wednesday, as we're recording Planet Normal, government borrowing figures show that for the first time since 1961, the main headline rate of government borrowing in the UK, of government national debt, has gone above 100% of GDP. It's now 100.1%. The first time that's happened since 1961. And of course, in 1961, the massive debts after the Second World War were on their way down and they (laughs) hit 100%. They're now, of course, on the way up. And that adds pressure too, doesn't it, to the government's ability to finance its debt going forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's hugely worrying. I mean, I think one of the things that is less discussed about the effects of monetary policy and and QE over the last 15 years is actually not just uh, the kind of regressive nature of it and the problems we've just discussed, But what it's done in terms of the incentives for banks to lend to businesses in the real economy, incentives for, you know, the financialization of of businesses through things like leveraged buyouts and share buybacks and things like that, all of which I think has contributed to the low growth that we've had over this period. And obviously, when we're talking about things like government debt, uh, government borrowing, Part of the story with that is making sure that the things that the government spends money on, public services and so on, are as efficient as they should be. Part of it's about reducing the demand for government, fixing social problems and that kind of thing. And part of it, you know, as the coalition showed between 2010 and 15, is about actually just reducing government spending. But actually, the factor that I think has been neglected has been the need for really solid growth over time, because that's, in the end, the sustainable way in which everybody gets more prosperous, but also um, the amount the state takes in taxes becomes more sustainable, because you're doing it through a growing economy and a more prosperous society, rather than just taxing more heavily the same-sized cake that isn't growing. Which, of course, takes us back to the whole debate about Liz Truss and Quasi Quatting, were they right in terms of the essence of their policies, the direction of their travel, even if they overegged the pace at which they were trying to get things done? You know, I think you're exactly right to have taken us back to the aftermath of the global financial crisis. But I think lockdown is also looming large in our current economic predicament, because during lockdown, we did print an awful lot of money. We actually did more QE during lockdown than we did during the previous 10 years. 450 billion quids worth of the stuff compared to 425 billion from 2009 to 2020. And also during lockdown, the state sort of lurched forward into our national consciousness, going from about 38% of GDP normally, government spending, it rocketed to the low 50s 
in terms of percentage points. And since then, it hasn't returned to where it was before. It's still around 45% of GDP this year, next year, and for the foreseeable future, even though we haven't kind of got the tax apparatus and the sort of psychological ability to tax ourselves at that level, which is why government borrowing is spiralling. So COVID lockdown did represent a massive land grab by the states. And I'm surprised that so many Conservatives now, they do seem to think that extra government spending is the answer to all their problems. And I wonder if this spike in government bond yields, if this spike in borrowing costs, which seems now not to be temporary, as it was in the aftermath of the trust quoting budget, we are now structurally at a higher government bond yield than we were at the height of the panic of last September's mini budget. The two-year yield now consistently above 5%. I wonder if that will change the thinking on the Conservative backbenchers if your party have got the guts to actually rediscover their small state roots, even if they have to have the discipline imposed on them to do so by the markets. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Conservatives are actually a little exhausted after the years of coalitions. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to cut and it's difficult to hold the line and say no. And then I think there's been this ideological tendency that was summed up by the Liz Truss quasi Quarteng period, which said, actually, we don't necessarily need to do the hard yards of fiscal conservatism. We don't really need to worry too much about the deficit because we can go for growth by cutting taxes. And the problem with that was it lost the confidence of the gilt markets. And you can say, well, government policy shouldn't be dictated by the gilt markets. But you can only say that if you don't have the stock of debt and the kind of deficit that a country like Britain has. And we are where we are. And it's it's not very much you saying, well, I wouldn't start from here. So I think the bottom line is, whatever it is that you think has gone wrong with monetary policy, and whatever it is that you think the government needs to do to make sure that fiscally, it is in the right place, your fiscal plans do need to sustain the confidence of markets. And that means either accepting that government spending will fall, or that taxes will rise, or some mix of the two. And that is before we even take into account other long term trends, which I think are now starting to show, which are to do with things like our changing demographics, because we're an increasingly old society. We have to spend more on pensions, healthcare, social care, because we have more old people. And that affects the choices we make about fiscal policy as well. Where do you think Brexit looms in this, Nick? I have to mention the B word. Let's ignore the other B word, Boris, because I think so many of our Listeners are sick of hearing about the former prime minister, and there are clearly lots and lots of serious things to discuss. It seems to me that food price inflation high in the UK, it's still up at 18.3% in May, only down slightly from 19.1%. But it's not that much higher than elsewhere in the EU. Oxford Economics actually say in the round, food is 7% cheaper in the UK than the EU average. And of course, many EU countries, they subsidise their energy bills to a greater extent than we do, or the French have nuclear, so their energy crunch has been less than us. So that's less to do 
with Brexit. So do you think, Nick, that the fact we're outside the European Union has aggravated inflation? Because there are an awful lot of Remainers or Ramonas who are trying to make that argument. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a complicated question. And it is the case that we start off with uh, cheaper food than in most European countries. But that won't feel like much of a consolation to families who um, experience the pain of the weekly grocery bill going up. I mean, anybody with a family can feel that. The price rises are, are pretty obvious on your weekly shop. You know, whether this is to do with Brexit or not, I just think this is kind of the problem with where Britain is politically, where actually there are too many people who want to relitigate the result of the of the 2016 referendum. Clearly, there may be some costs at the margin to do with uh, you know the bureaucracy of importing things or effects on sterling's value. But actually, I just wish our political class were capable of thinking a bit more deeply than just going back to their own hobby horses. I mean, you mentioned France. France has had far lower inflation than we have because it's actually had a consistent and viable energy strategy Mm. that has sustained energy prices and better energy security than we've ever managed through its nuclear strategy. Mm. We should be learning from that. We should be learning from other countries in all sorts of ways. I don't think that the big economic project of Brexit is to try to radically deregulate or even radically cut taxes because, you know, frankly, we've just tried that and for the reasons we've just been discussing, that's pretty difficult. There are regulations to change and one of our big opportunities is to have better regulatory frameworks for areas of potential growth like life sciences and tech and so on. But to me, the post-Brexit economic challenge is to actually address some of these long-term challenges that we've ducked for too long, whether that's about energy costs, whether it's about long-term productivity, investments in infrastructure, actually having a strategy that maximizes the opportunities we've got from the sectors of industry where we're already strong, but also where we have an opportunity as new sectors start to emerge. You know, there's so much we could talk about Nick, we could talk about what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. We could talk about kids who are identifying as cats and number 10 wading into that route. But I'm going to save that for when we read out some listener emails, because I did want to ask you about the COVID lockdown inquiry. I know you thought deeply about lockdown and we've talked about it when you've previously helped us to present Planet Normal. But I, I thought Professor Dame Sally Davis's evidence earlier this week really was astonished. She is, of course, the former chief medical officer. She acknowledged that lockdown damaged a generation of children. It's clear no one really thought through lockdown, she says. The damage I now see to children and students from COVID and the educational impact tells me that education has a terrific amount of work to do. It's awful as head of a college in Cambridge to watch young people struggle tear-strewn evidence, Nick. I thought it was pretty telling that somebody of her seniority, her revered place in the establishment, was starting to acknowledge the lack of cost-benefit analysis of lockdown and the fact that in many cases, in many senses, it was a pretty mindless policy. Well, it was done on the hoof. uh, And I thought that the evidence that David Cameron gave 
was also very interesting and you know should be read alongside Dame Sally's because what David said was true, I think. You know, the international risk registers that were published by different bodies before the pandemic showed that Britain and America were the two best countries in terms of their preparedness for a pandemic. Everyone thought we were in a great place, but all the planning was to do with a flu pandemic. And so we weren't prepared for this. And and actually, uh, you know, I think Dame Sally said that she'd visited Asia and had asked questions about whether we ought to do more to prepare for a SARS-style pandemic. And that, for one reason or another, never happened. And we were poorly prepared. And I think people understand that the government was having to deal with something that was complex and unprecedented. And it was, you know, certainly early on, it took a while to understand exactly what the virus was. But it is the case that the lockdown came with consequences. Now, I, I did not oppose lockdown. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's important that we recognise that it is a matter of live debate, even now, sure. about whether lockdown was, was a good idea and what the consequences were. There were certainly things that even I, as somebody who supported the government and what it did, you know, had serious reservations about, you know, for example, closing down schools when uh, we knew that children were not so affected by the virus. But what I hope is that this inquiry does actually get into these questions, because what I'm concerned about from what I've seen so far is that there's a certain amount of attempts by some of the parties to make it about Brexit, to make it about fiscal policy, and so on. And this won't be helpful. We weren't prepared because civil servants were preparing for a no-deal Brexit. We weren't prepared because austerity meant the nation had no money. Yeah, and that's that, That's certainly some of what we've been hearing from you know, some of the parties connected to the inquiry. I don't think that's helpful. What's helpful with this inquiry is working out how Britain can be better prepared for the next one and what policies that we tried at different points were effective and were not effective or which policies came with trade-offs that actually, you know, looking back, we think meant that actually the cost was too disproportionate. I think that's well put, Nick. It's so galling that the usual suspects want to make even this inquiry into COVID lockdown, you know, one of the most far-reaching and profound policy moves of our lifetimes. They want to make it about other ideological issues. But Dame Sally is the first really senior former government official to criticise lockdown amidst allegations, of course, that the inquiry is limiting outside voices. So I do think her testimony is, is noteworthy and indeed admirable in that sense. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you've been in the room at the highest level of British government and governance, Nick, over many years in various guises. Why is it that Sweden can do a lockdown inquiry in a few months? Why is it that Italy, even our Italian friends, have completed their lockdown inquiry? Why is it that, you know, the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war took seven years? The Bloody Sunday inquiry took 12 years And this inquiry, we're being told it's going to take at least three years. Why do we do this to ourselves in Britain? Why can't we just get on with it and have a focused inquiry that addresses, as you say, the most important question? 
if and when this comes along again, what do we do? Yeah, I think it's a fair question. I just, I mean, it's utterly ridiculous that we're going to spend years <laughs> Um, like try, trying to learn the lessons of something when actually the risk is always with us and we should be trying to do this quickly and we should be trying to do it in a way that actually focuses on the real questions and not the kind of ideology that you just mentioned. I mean, I think in part it's down to the legislation that underpins inquiries. The Blair government passed an act which sets out how inquiries should work. It seems to me that they are they are too loyally, they are too processy, and, you know, I think we can already see signs of this. They're, they're probably too political. This really should be almost a technocratic exercise to try to work out actually, you know, what worked, what other countries did, how did they differ, what were the success rates, what were the, what were the trade-offs, what were the consequences. And we need to do that pretty quickly. And, we, you know, it could be broken down so that different bits were done concurrently. And I just, I don't think it's a sensible way of doing things. Well, I must say, we do need to have this debate. I know we had slightly different views about lockdown as it was progressing, but we need to talk about that. Alison and I were, we backed lockdown initially, of course, like I think the vast majority of the country when we didn't know what COVID was. But as we went on and we saw that uh, it affected different ages in different ways, we did try and conduct on this podcast more of a cost-benefit analysis, looking at the economic impact, the educational impact, and so on. But I'm going to put you on the spot here, Nick, and this is being recorded, of course, for posterity. How many years will this inquiry take? More than five (laughs) or less? Well, I mean, based on the inquiries we've seen before, I would think it probably is going to be more than five, which is crazy. Crikey. Just crazy. Don't you think? What's your guess? Well, I'm afraid, Nick, I have to reluctantly agree with you. I do think it will take more than five years. In March, the Daily Telegraph broke a story. The former health secretary, Matt Hancock, has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now, those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The Covid inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode. Now on to our Planet Normal guest. Dr. Rakib Essan is a research analyst and writer specialising in matters of social cohesion, race relations and public security. He's the author of the book Beyond Grievance, What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities, which was published last week. Rakib hails from a proud Bangladeshi family and grew up in Luton. He did well at school, eventually obtaining a PhD in political science investigating the impact of social integration on the public attitudes of British non-white ethnic minorities. 
a former trade unionist. Rakib is politically heterodox, gaining ideas from across the spectrum. Appearing regularly on a broad range of broadcast outlets and writing for numerous titles, he's established himself as an authority on matters of racial identity and social integration. His views often sought by parliamentarians and policymakers alike. Welcoming Rakib back to Planet Normal, he first boarded the rocket in November 2021. I started by asking him what he thinks of the view promoted by some politicians and many broadcasters and other media outlets that Britain is a racist, unwelcoming country. Well, I find that narrative to be very depressing and overly doom and gloom, uh, in my view, Liam. Uh, Now, I wouldn't be in the business of looking at the country through rose-tinted spectacles, but I do firmly believe that Britain is one of the most successful examples of a multi-ethnic democracy in the modern world. Now, of course, there are improvements to be made, which I'm hoping that we will tackle over the course of this conversation. But if you take, for example, the provision of anti-discrimination protections on the grounds of race, ethnicity and religion, Britain outperforms a number of countries in the Western world, including major EU member states such as France and Germany. If you look across the pond at the United States, a relatively youthful country which is very much struggling to get to grips with the legacy of slavery and segregation, bitterly divided along racial lines. So I'd say that on the whole, Britain fares very well when it comes to providing those opportunities, protections and freedoms for ethnic minority citizens to thrive and prosper. You were born in West London, you were raised in Luton, both places with large ethnic minority communities, Rakib. Your family is of Bangladeshi origin, as I said. I must say, in your book, your pride in your family shines through on pretty much every page. How would you describe community relations in Luton today compared to the Luton of your childhood? Back in the day, it was very tense, especially after 9-11. We also had the Butchers of Basra demonstrations and the subsequent formation of the English Defence League in the town. So community relations were incredibly tense. But I would say that the tolerant, law-abiding majority in the town helped to overcome that. Um, And as you know, Liam, my hometown club, Luton Town FC, more affectionately known as the Hatters, recently won promotion to the Premier League. I knew we'd get onto that. I knew we'd get onto that. (laughs) And and, and I think those kind of local civic assets, they help to bring different communities together. If there's one thing that can bring young, disaffected lads from different communities together, and more broadly sport. So I think that my brand of politics is very communitarian in nature. And I really value those local civic assets, local community assets, which can really help to cultivate social solidarity in a diverse town such as mine. The most important thing, surely, is schooling, isn't it? I grew up in in Brent in the 70s. At that point, Brent was the most ethnically diverse borough in the UK. I went to school with kids of Bangladeshi, Indian, Caribbean, Cypriot, Jewish, Afghan origin, and many, many others. They remain some of my dearest friends to this day. What was your schooling like in Luton? I'd say it's very similar in that sense, Liam. I'd say it was a hyper-diverse environment. I have friends in the town, white Brits, 
people of Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi, Black Caribbean, Black African heritage, also a good number of mixed race friends. And I think it's worth mentioning that considering that mixed race people represent the fastest growing ethnic category in the country, according to the latest census figures. And once again, I'd say that schooling overall was a very positive experience. I enjoyed playing for the sports teams. And I think not just within my own school, but those school fixtures with other institutions. I I remember I had a cricket match for school where we had a cup game against predominantly white British private school. That was a fantastic opportunity to build those bonds of social trust and mutual respect with peers with a very different background. So once again, it shows how sport can cultivate and stimulate that collective solidarity in multi-ethnic Britain. At the heart of your book, Beyond Grievance, is that tension, growing tensions, you call them, between the liberal cosmopolitanism, which defines much of the British left, on the one hand, and the patriotic faith-based conservatism that runs deep in many of Britain's ethnic minority communities. Tell me about that patriotic faith-based conservatism that you grew up with, Rakib, and which runs so deep across your community and many other ethnic minority communities. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd make the point, Liam, that many Lutonians come from countries which are incredibly unstable socially, politically and economically. And the town has many first generation migrants. They have naturally positive orientations towards British democracy because of their experiences in other countries. While I was born and raised here, I've I've visited Bangladesh on five occasions. And it it is a country that I have a great deal of affection for and that I love very dearly. But it also makes me appreciate the kinds of opportunities that I've benefited being a British citizen who was born and raised in the UK. Now, when you're talking about those patriotic sentiments, I think that something that was missing from Brexit relating narratives in the mainstream media was the numbers in which ethnic minorities voted to leave the European Union. Indeed, Birmingham back Brexit, majority minority city, as we say, where the majority of people are ethnic minorities. The Brexit vote was strong in Luton, similarly a majority minority city, Leicester, Peterborough, Bradford. I mean, many, many ethnic minority communities did back Brexit, even though the left or parts of the left were trying to tell us that Brexit voters were all racist. No, absolutely. And I think there's a location in Hounslow called Austerley and Springgrove, a non-white majority ward, very affluent, delivered a leave vote of 63.4%. Where does that come from? Is it is it because many of those families, many of those communities will have very much adhered to the rules, will have carefully made sure that they were engaged in legal migration, bringing over family members and so on. I remember that from my childhood. Is that where it comes from? Was that an, uh, uh, was, the, was the Brexit vote among ethnic minorities about immigration or was it about sovereignty or was it about something else? I think there's a variety of factors, Liam. I'd make the point that under EU freedom of movement, I'd say there's predominantly white European migrants were the beneficiaries of preferential treatment. And I think there was the belief in certain communities that we had a two-tier immigration system as a result of that. 
So leaving the EU was seen as an opportunity to create more of a level playing field. I'd also make the point that many first generation migrants from the Indian subcontinent, they have a very strong British identity. For many of them, coming to Britain was returning to the motherland. So there was that strong patriotic feeling but there's there's not much of a room for a european identity in that sense or rather they don't feel an ounce of europeanness their attachments are to britain their country of origin which is outside the european union and to their faith as well and i think crucially there was the feeling in in certain communities that it would be better for british foreign policy to, to have a re, reorientation towards the Commonwealth, emerging markets in the Commonwealth, in the Asian and African continent, the belief that the EU is a somewhat sclerotic and inefficient block. So there's a variety of factors at play. But what I found really interesting, Liam, was that you had London-based journalists going to working men's clubs and pubs in the provincial Midlands and Northern England to talk with Brexit voters when they could have found plenty of them in Mondays and Gurdwaras across West London. <laughs> now, a key event in recent race relations was, of course, the ghastly murder of George Floyd by police in Minnesota in May 2020. You describe in your book that photo of Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner taking the knee in support of Black Lives Matter. You describe it as cringeworthy. The mistake this tribe of left-wingers make, you write, is brainlessly importing the BLM campaign from the United States, ignoring the very real historical, cultural and political differences between the two countries. What's the difference, do you think, between race relations in the UK and the US, despite the fact that we so often end up importing a lot of the kind of media vibes about race relations from America? I think that many of the subcontinental origin communities in the US, they're very much sandwiched in between uh, various groups when it comes to the divisive nature of the race relations uh, debate there. I'd also make the point that Indian origin uh, citizens in the US, uh, s- similar to Indian origin citizens in the UK, perform very well in an educational and economic sense, defined by high levels of family stability and intergenerational connection as well. If you're looking at it more broadly with the race relations debate, I thought one of the most hilarious moments was when you had British BLM demonstrators chanting at their own police officers, don't shoot, which is quite remarkable when the vast majority of our police forces, they serve their duties unarmed and they overwhelm, the industry overwhelmingly supports that model of policing. There's research that I've done in the past which shows that British citizens look at race very differently when it comes to looking at race issues in the United States. Britain is not America. And as I said previously, America, in my view, is is a relatively youthful experiment more than anything. And, And the country is struggling to get to grips with the legacy and indeed the trauma of slavery and segregation. So what I call for in the book is a mature anti-racist politics in the UK, which is British specific and does not draw inspiration from what I'd consider to be the toxic culture wars in the United States. Let's talk about grooming gangs, Rakib, if I may, in Leeds, in Rotherham, in Greater Manchester. Rishi Sunak recently said the safety of women and girls is paramount for too long. Political correctness has stopped us from weeding out vile criminals who prey on children and young women. And on that theme of political correctness, Suella Braveman, Home Secretary, then said, we have to be honest about the fact that some of these gangs have been overwhelmingly 
British Pakistani males. How has it been for you, for your community, to watch the story about these grooming gangs unfold? Do you think your community accepts that political correctness played a role in stopping some of these ghastly criminals? Do you think it did play a role in stopping them being brought to justice earlier? I think there's a prevailing view in many parts of the UK that our police forces, but not just police forces, but public institutions more broadly, were paralysed by the forces of racial identity politics, political correctness and religious sensitivities when it came to numerous cases of grooming gang scandals the country has witnessed. I think that more broadly we have this toxic mixture of racial identity politics but also victim-blaming tendencies as well. And, And I think that one of the examples that springs to mind is Operation Augusta which was primarily investigating suspected cases involving predominantly Pakistani Muslim men and underaged white working class girls. This was prematurely closed uh, by Greater Manchester Police, the the support of Manchester City Council. And this was largely because there was a fear within Greater Manchester Police because it had been previously investigating cases involving Kurdish origin men and they didn't want to be seen as targeting another minority group. I think for me ultimately there's a fundamental dereliction of duty and and I think that a a true marker of a civilised society is how we protect our most vulnerable and and I think that when it comes to the grooming gang cases uh, which we've seen in many parts of the country uh, I'd almost go as far as saying some of the most vulnerable girls in our society are ultimately being sacrificed at the altar of diversity politics. And I think that it's a crying shame that when you see politicians on the left, such as Sarah Champion, highlight these issues, the level of hostility that she faced by many on the contemporary British left. I think that's part of the problem. Why did the left do it, Rakib, in your view? Why did Jeremy Corbyn tweet? Before the 2019 election, only Labour can be trusted to unlock the talent of black, Asian and minority ethnic people who've been held back by the Conservatives. I know you found that tweet incredibly patronising, didn't you? Indeed, it's very extremely condescending. I think what it is, is that there is this view that ethnic minorities should automatically pledge their allegiance. Um, to, to the Labour Party. And there's no doubt that the Labour Party uh, in the past have taken positive steps to facilitate the social and economic integration of ethnic minority communities, especially through the Race Relations Act that we saw being passed in the 1970s. But I almost feel that now what we're seeing is almost a reluctance to appreciate and celebrate the successes of ethnic minority communities because what they do especially non-white ethnic minority communities and you have also this reluctance to acknowledge very real forms of white british working class social and economic disadvantage precisely because those two state of affairs they fundamentally undercut white privilege narratives and the race politics that many people on the left hold very dearly. And I think that's a crying shame. And I think that's something that needs to change if the left really wants to reconnect with more aspirational and traditional ethnic minority communities. So three of the last four Home Secretaries, Rakib, have been Brits of Asian origin. The Prime Minister is a Brit of Asian 
origin while obviously born in the UK. Could that happen in any other country in the Western world? I don't think so, and definitely not in Western Europe. As, as you know, in France, Liam, they have the principle of laicite, what I'd consider to be quite an aggressive form of colourblind, which they call colourblind egalitarianism and this secular universalism. They won't even discuss racial and religious diversity because they see it as a threat to the indivisible republic. But the reality is, I think the French model of rigid assimilationism is not going according to plan, especially when it comes to socially conservative minorities. Then in Germany, you have the Christian Democrats, a party which is bitterly divided on the topic of whether it'd be acceptable to have a non-Christian leader of the party in the future. So you see how Britain is far advanced when you see the, the, the kinds of issues and discussions. And yet we constantly beat ourselves up. The, the media constantly beats up the population for being racist. Absolutely. And this is why I do make that point that we are a relatively advanced and successfully inclusive multiracial democracy. As you say, we have a prime minister who is unapologetic when it comes to how he practices his Hindu faith. We have a Muslim mayor of London and also a Muslim Scottish first minister. As you mentioned, we have a home secretary in Swala Brahman who follows Buddhism. So we have a multi-faith democracy that I do think we can take pride in. And I think the political incorporation of Britain's ethnic and religious minorities shows how inclusive we are as a modern day democracy. Rakib, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal. Thank you for having me, Liam. So there you have it, Nick. Dr. Rakib Hassan, his book Beyond Grievance, What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities, has just been published. It strikes me he's a pretty valuable voice in the British debate. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting interview. I know him a little bit. We've corresponded and met, actually. He's certainly somebody worth reading and listening to uh, whenever he does his stuff. I think it's actually quite interesting because his book has come out at the same time as another book by somebody else I'd also recommend, a guy called Tomo Olade, who's written a book called This Is Not America, where I think the, the arguments overlap quite neatly. It's obviously not the case that Britain is some kind of post-racial nirvana where there is no discrimination or disparity. But this kind of doomster argument that we're uniquely bad just doesn't really hold up to any kind of scrutiny. And I think it's really interesting and important that people like Rakib are, are making these arguments and giving plenty of evidence along with the arguments. This is close to both our hearts, isn't it? I grew up in Brent in the 70s and 80s, which then was the most ethnically diverse part of the UK. You grew up as a proud Brummie. Birmingham is, of course, what we call a majority minority city with so many proud ethnic minority families having made their way there over so many years and, and generations. And I agree with you. Of course, there are still racial tensions and problems. But I think in the round... Britain does pretty well here. Consistently, surveys of international public opinion conducted by the like of the Pew Global Institute and other polling companies show that even when the British economy is under pressure, our population remains extremely tolerant towards and welcoming to immigration compared to other countries. I must say, though, that when the pace of immigration is so high as it currently is, it can start to tear at the social fabric. 
Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. I mean, I think the opinion research shows that people have no problem with immigration per se, but they do have a problem with the volume of it and the speed of it. And I think around about 60% of people consistently say immigration has been too high. And, you know, let's be honest, net migration in the last 12 months was 606,000. That's an incredible number and it is too high for practical reasons. You know, we have a housing problem through to questions of whether that provides the right incentives for employers to train people up and to invest in labour-saving technology and the challenges of social integration as well. And I, in a way, we're kind of two nations again. It's sort of, on one hand, we're the place where it is the case that actually people are pretty tolerant and open to certainly things like mixed race relationships, which are growing at, a, at enormous speed. We have a prime minister with Indian heritage. It's remarkable that that was barely commented on, really. Yeah. It's just accepted as though it were something almost not worth debating. You know, all of that's great. On the other hand, I think we still have these difficulties in succeeding with social integration. And and yeah, I mean, I'm from Birmingham and and in some ways I think our backgrounds are quite similar. Mm. We do have problems with quite isolated communities uh, where actually people have kind of self-segregated and where I think sometimes these stories hit the news because in the most high-profile ways. We're talking about things like extremism and violent extremism. But actually, at a more mundane level, there's this kind of challenge of communities and people from different communities that don't mix. And where this country works, it's it's where we've got people mixing and respecting one another and sharing in moments and institutions and places that make us feel like we're one. And where we struggle, it's where... The two worlds don't come together. I think that's right. And I think what Rakib's interview and book also point to is that the Labour Party really have to start to understand Britain's ethnic minorities, many of whom, you know, are not in need endlessly of state support and can only succeed, as people like Jeremy Corbyn have said, if Labour helps them. A lot of the wonderful Indian, Pakistani, Asian families I grew up with <laughs> seriously entrepreneurial people. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that they need to be mollycoddled is ridiculous. They just want to be unleashed and allowed to do their thing and create wealth, jobs and enterprise. And I think it's interesting how the voting patterns of ethnic minorities have shifted away from Labour more so when we were kids towards the other parties. And I think Rakib's thoughts and feelings reflect that. But I want to get your reflections Nick, on one other thing, you will be looking at Labour very, very closely. They are around 16 points ahead in the opinion polls at the moment. That's before this mortgage time bomb, such as it is, really does land on Middle England, if you like. What do you think of Starmer's front bench, say compared to Tony Blair's shadow team in the mid-90s as they were preparing for power? And what do you think of the Labour leader himself, as a potential prime minister? Oh, so much to say. <laughs> they are miles ahead in the polls, but I think that reflects more on the Conservative Party than it does on very much that Starmer has done. And, you know, the party, the Conservative Party in many ways has behaved as though it has had a death wish for the last year or two. I mean, I think the problems the country faces are huge. 
really complex economic challenges in particular. Uh, you know, we've talked about monetary policy. So there are these big macroeconomic questions. And then there are these other questions about how you reform the economy in a way that is going to get pay growing again, that's going to allow people to share in the prosperity that should be growing year on year. And honestly, I don't see a great deal from the Labour Party that shows me that they have a plan to do that. Starmer has, ever since he ran for the Labour leadership, whether it's on his attitude to Jeremy Corbyn or Shamima Begum, or whether it's about nationalising the utilities or ending tuition fees, he's literally said one thing and then the opposite right across the board. And they talk big language about green growth and stuff like that. But I haven't seen a proper plan that makes me think that they actually really know how to steer the country to a better future economically. So while the Tory party has has got itself into this mess, I do not think the answers lie with the Labour Party. And Starmer himself, I think, in a way, it's difficult to know what he is because he changes position every five minutes. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. This is from Phil. You must have had many emails this week, says Phil, commenting on the secret audio recorded by pupils at Rye College. I've listened to the recording three times and I'm getting progressively more angry. It's clear that the pupils know facts are facts, but the teacher fails to understand that cats are cats. Trendy terms such as gender identity, cisgender and heteronormative are recent inventions, but belief in them is being readily gobbled up by idiots, says Phil. One such person proved to me that cisgender people existed because the word cisgender is in the dictionary. I pointed out, so is vampire, elf and Beelzebub, but I've never seen any of them in real life. The Rye College audio shows something else. Today's children aren't stupid. If I was 11 years of age, I'd readily tell the teacher I was a cat or a dinosaur, knowing it would be fun to watch adults get their knickers in a twist, whilst I would be untouchable, because nobody would dare attack my, in quotes, identity. And if my kid identified as a cat, said Phil, I'd serve up a saucer of milk and some whiskers super meat, and place a litter tray in their room. The PlayStation would be packed away, because you can't use it if you have paws. Dealing with children is easy, it's the adults who are the problem as the Rye College audio proves. And unwittingly, it was that teacher who let the cat out of the bag. Boom, boom. (laughs) I think Phil needs a job writing uh, headlines for the sun. (laughs) This one is from Duncan. Dear Alison and Liam, uh, thanks to Planet Normal for sticking up for our oil and gas industry and the jobs and energy security it provides. We know that accelerating the decline of North Sea oil and gas production will increase emissions due to imports threaten jobs and threaten investment in the energy transition. The UK will need oil and gas for many years and it makes no sense to import while shutting down our own industry. I'm hugely passionate about the energy transition and completed a master's degree in the subject in 2022. The energy transition remains a huge multi-decade process with numerous obstacles to overcome. For me, it's obvious that we need to keep investing in the North Sea for energy security and the economy, while also embracing the energy transition and the opportunities that investments in renewable technologies can bring. 
The SNP and Labour have both issued policies that would block new investment in North Sea oil and gas. However, the energy profits levy, the EPL, is also really damaging the industry and the energy transition too. The latest announcement from the government about a price floor for the EPL is a disingenuous fudge with a floor that is unlikely to ever kick in. It also creates a completely insane cliff edge. So if oil or gas averages even a cent or penny more than the floor price, it triggers 35% in additional taxes on the entire output. Politicians of all sides don't seem to understand reality and seem hell-bent on damaging our oil industry, weakening the energy transition and exposing the country to energy insecurity. Well said. And this is Jim. Dear Alison and Liam, love the podcast. The current mortgage crisis got me thinking about how things were in the 70s and 80s. The mortgage providers' criteria were far stricter back then. My wife and I were only allowed to borrow two and a half times my salary plus one times hers. The building societies had a cautious approach to lending and the last thing they wanted was to have borrowers in trouble if interest rates rose. Secondly, there were far fewer fixed rate deals back then. And thirdly, when interest rates rose, what happened on numerous occasions in the 70s and 80s, you got a letter from your building society advising you of your new rate and the new monthly repayment required, but it gave you the option to not increase your repayment, but instead extend your loan. The letter advised the new length of your mortgage loan if repayments were not increased. During that period, my wife and I received such a letter. The interest rate was going up to 15%, and in the box for the new mortgage length was printed the word, INFINITY! (laughs) Our reaction to the rapid rise in mortgage repayments was to tighten our belts, cut out our spending on luxuries and ride things out until the economy improved and rates dropped. Keep up the good work, Jim. This one is from Victoria. Dear Alison and Liam, although I believe Boris Johnson was the author of his own downfall, and I for one will never forgive him for squandering an 80-seat majority and the historic opportunity it presented this country, the sight of all those self-entitled MPs queuing up to kick a man when he's down was one of the most unedifying spectacles in Parliament. Those same people who voted for longer and stricter lockdowns found the time to wallow in sanctimony while this country sinks below the waterline. I will never vote for such a bunch of charlatans. What a disgrace they are and unworthy of the voters of this country who mistakenly placed their trust in them. Yours sincerely, Victoria. And so that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Nick, as our guest, it's your call. I just thought the line about facts are facts and cats are cats was just so brilliant, so I give it to Phil. (laughs) Phil, not only have you got a putative job as a Sun headline writer, other papers are available, you've also won a Planet Normal mug, so send us an email, planetnormal.telegraph.co.uk, put in the subject heading mug winner and give us your postal address and a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug will wing its way towards you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find the podcast so the Planet Normal family can grow. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Casso, Louisa Wells, and of course, our fabulous co-host this week, Nick Timothy. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.